Welcome to the Untitled Burton and Fran podcast. We're two brothers separated by time and distance. Please join us as we reconnect through our mutual love of horror movies. Excellent. So this is episode one. <laughs> episode one of the Untitled Burton Friend podcast. Okay, good. In terms of timing, I think this is uh, it's interesting for me because I uh, was just watching TV and I just happened to click onto the ending of Final Destination. Oh, I've never seen a single movie from that entire series. I'm surprised. I think uh, they're worth watching. And it reminds me a little bit of the inevitability of death uh, from the movie we're about to talk about. Well, excellent. So you just watched uh, It Follows this past weekend, is that right? Absolutely, yeah. And uh, so I didn't get to see it in the theater, so I want to hear about your theater experience. I wish I'd seen I wish I'd seen it in the theater, but I saw it on uh, on my laptop with my headphones on, and I uh, so that was my experience. You saw it in a theater, right? I did. I did see it in an old half movie palace, and yeah. by half movie palace, I mean that it is half the size of your conventional movie palace. It's this uh, very rundown affair that's uh, very popular here in Chicago called the Music Box. And there's something very seedy about it because they endlessly reconfigure the lobby, but they've not changed the interior of it in decades. Was it always a, a ha- like? Was it ever bigger, and they've cut it down, or, or was this always the size of that theater? This was always the size of that theater. Okay. It, they strangely have a, a a pretty large auditorium, which is pretty generous size. They they can show seventy millimeter films in it. And they've got a, a very tiny art house a side theater, which is barely bigger than a closet uh, for, for uh, a second show uh, to be playing at the same time. Okay. But, uh, but it's, it's... It it's, reminds me a little bit of in the olden days of the Southampton movie theater. Do you remember where the, we'd have to walk through the theater to get to one of the ones in the back? Do you remember that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I, absolutely. It's probably a little bit nicer than that, just just a little bit. But the the, the seats are threadbare. Uh, it's really uncomfortable. Uh, I have to say, if you're in for a long movie, and this was thankfully not a very long movie, uh, it, it gets downright painful. It, uh-huh. I, th- I think it's the most but uncomfortable it's seats in Chicago. But it's still popular. You're saying it is. It is. Yeah. Uh, they they show uh, films that don't get shown in a lot of other places. They do oddball uh, movie festivals. They're doing uh, a 70 millimeter film festival right now, which is uh, an arbitrary collection of movies that uh, from Lawrence of Arabia, which is pretty great, to Cleopatra, which is not so great, to Crawl. Right. It's funny. <laughs> which... I just watched the first like hour or so of Cleopatra. I'd never really seen it, and again, it was on 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 TV. And I found it not that bad. Uh, uh, the first hour, as as long as Rex Harrison is still alive, it's, yeah, he's still alive. What I yeah, say. It, it's it's pretty great. And then yeah. when it when it's just the Burtons, when it's just Richard and Elizabeth, yeah, uh, it's it's pretty terrible. Okay, and and almost like suffering through their terrible marriage for the last uh, yeah, half future, of it. a future episode of our podcast, <laughs> possibly. 
the first question I think we uh, I'd want to know is like, did you like It Follows? I really, really liked it. I, I saw it uh, opening weekend. I saw it on my own, and it was uh, like I mentioned but, at the music box. They had an organist playing, and so there were creepy similarities to the date that the main character goes on with her boyfriend Hugh in the first fifteen minutes of the movie. They Absolutely. go to a old revival movie house that's playing Charade uh, with Cary Grant and Audrey Hepburn, and there's an organist playing, and it had a lot of the similar feel of it. It was uh, it, it definitely added to the overall creepiness of it. It sounds like a great place to see this. I mean, and you had no idea this was going to happen in the not in a that, clue on that first date, uh, as I'm sure most of the people in the theater. And so it it must have been an interesting. Uh, ambience in there as this is going on. You know, it reminded me of, I don't know if you remember this, this old uh, junky Spanish horror movie from the 80s called Anguish. Did we see that together? I definitely have seen it. I don't remember the details of it, but I do. Do you remember if we saw that together? I think we might have rented it together. And yeah. I de- you definitely rented it at a time where I was such a, a, a chicken that I, I don't know that I could have watched m- most of it except through my hands. Uh-huh. So I, I think I more listened to it than watched it, and then you described it to me afterwards, which <laughs> I, I have to say, you describing horror movies to me when I was a kid was possibly the most terrifying thing ever. <laughs> I, I remember you describing to me the plot of Friday the 13th, the first film, and it was infinitely more scary than watching the movie. <laughs> And anguish was Is that good or bad. I can't. Tell. I, I, I think it made me scared of horror movies for a very long time. Yeah. But anguish, you know, I covered my eyes, and you would describe to me what was happening, and it was, you know, way worse. <laughs> Your storytelling was was way more vivid than the film's uh, budget, uh, acting allowed. So well, I don't know if, uh, in general, in terms of horror, since that seems to be the are going to be our theme, hopefully coming forward. I enjoy reading sometimes about horror movies or more than seeing them. Like I think I create, uh, and I don't know if you feel the same way. Like uh, in my imagination, I sometimes create a hor- uh, a scarier concept than maybe is execute. You know, sometimes it's hard to execute these things, and the ideas are great. It's almost like reading. Um, uh, a short story or something, you know, when you read these reviews or the synopsis of a, of a movie. And so my imagination sometimes is more interesting to me than the, the real movie. So I often read more about horror movies than see them. Do you I, feel the same I, way? or I do. I, I actually think this is one of the reasons that this movie is quite as effective as it is, is that it has all this opportunity for ambiguity. It has so much that it doesn't explain or say that sits so uncomfortably in your imagination and you can imagine all kinds of terrible tangents <laughs> yeah. that, that sort of lead away from the the main storyline it's interesting because i i recently lent uh my copy of the blu-ray of this movie to a co-worker and weirdly on its way back to me my my blu-ray copy of the movie made rounds through the office i hadn't intended to lend it to a bunch of people but it ended up in a lot of people's hands and yeah. pe- people really hated it. Um, huh. They they really, really despised it. And I, I have to say, I think it may be people's expectations. Certainly, uh, people expect things to be maybe faster, more action-packed, uh, more explained, and uh, certainly gorier. But this is a real throwback. 
to horror movies of the late 70s and 80s. Absolutely. And that's why I thought I found so... Indri- so bottom line, I, I, you bl- I couldn't hear your response when I said, did you like it? Oh, yeah, I, I absolutely loved it. I did too, but I think I enjoyed it, and we might share this because it brought back so many uh, memories of enjoying horror movies in the past, including Halloween. And 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 for me, I, and so that's one thing I wanted to touch upon with you is like for me, this brought up so many other movies that I enjoyed. Did you feel the same way? Did you start thinking about other movies? And I and I can go through some of the main ones. Like for example, I think one of the main ones isn't even a horror movie. Is uh, and that's Donnie Darko. It, it seems so dreamy. To, it, it, uh, they did so many things effectively to kind of create a timeless world. Like you, you're not sure when this is taking place. There's a cell phone in the first scene, but other than that, all the cars are old and they're on corded phones. That it seems like a almost like a fever dream, which is I think maybe my favorite type of horror movie. And so that made me think of Donnie Darko, which has its own kind of. Uh, it takes place in its own kind of world or dream. Yeah, I agree. I, I love this this sort of uh, feeling of dream logic or nightmare logic as, yeah. as it works out in this movie. Donnie Darko was not a movie that I actually thought of, but I, I think that fits perfectly. Uh, the movies that I thought of immediately were uh, certainly John Carpenter's Halloween, largely because the the enemy, the the, the monster, shares that same sort of uh, Pepe Le Pew pursuit where they are extremely calm and slow, and that just stands in terrifying contrast to how helpless and uh, scattered and terrified the pursuit is. Uh, Nightmare on Elm Street was the other one that I thought of. Largely the second half of Nightmare on Elm Street where uh, Heather Langenkamp's character sort of begins to sort of devise plans to trap Freddy. And and there is that sense of trying to solve the problem within dream logic. And I I liked that aspect of the kids in the movie uh, sort of applying kind of a, a childish... Uh, solutions to what seems like mortal peril, but that seems to be the right thing to do. In that world, right, in that dream. And I, I agree that, that I thought of both those films, including the fact that there's like little teams of Pete, like in Halloween, the Jamie Lee Curtis has her group of friends, and then same thing with uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, where there's a like a core group of friends and that the adults are rarely seen. And so that theme is, is uh, runs through and follows as well. It feels like an homage and like a true homage. You know, an homage brings things that are familiar, but it always brings something new to the table. And when I think of Jamie Lee Curtis and her babysitter friends in Halloween, they're super chatty. There's a lot of exposition that gets conveyed through girl talk, through them uh, interacting with each other. What I like about the kids in It Follows is they feel like real teenagers. For, for starters, they actually look the part. They're, they don't look like 25 or 30 year olds playing the part. And they're so generally quiet around each other. They're awkward kids enjoying these comfortable silences and pauses with each other the same way that real kids would. And so, again, there's an opportunity for you to fill in a lot of the story of what came before and what's happening during the film that the film is not cluing you into explicitly. And they all seem likable too, which is something that they I thought they did effectively. They all seem like uh, good kids on some level. Yeah, they did. The amount of effort that they must have put into um, all those street scenes where they there's not a single modern car. Oh yeah, 
shows that they that they put a lot of time and money. I mean that that must have been expensive for them to make sure all the new cars were off the streets. That they only had old cars there made me think that you know this was they're really doing this deliberately. And I think the same applies to the clothes. There, this is all deliberate. Now, why it's deliberate is up to interpretation, but I, I agree with you that this, you know, the clothes were retro and the cars were retro and the phone, you know, there's a lime green phone, I think at one point, like this is all very calculated. And I think from my, from my perspective, I think it's just to make you just kind of disoriented the whole time you're saying, when does this take place? You know, what's going on? Is this nowadays? And the fact that they threw in like that clamshell e-reader really, really threw me. I thought, well, maybe this is sometime in the future and everything's collapsed and then a few things are modern and a few things aren't. Like I thought that was going to be a twist somehow, but it really throws you off. Like when is this taking place? There's no modern cars, but there's this weird clamshell. How did, what did you think about the clamshell? I love the unexpected quality of it. Uh, I loved uh, Jay's friend Yara reading from it very listlessly. Yeah, it was it was a true teenager's recitation uh, of of what she was reading. It was slightly distracted. It was slightly monotone. It was moderately interested uh, in what yeah. she was reading, but it wasn't a dramatic recitation. It wasn't the kind that you would normally find in a film, especially of the material that she was choosing to read. I thought I think that shows how how strong all the acting was in this movie. That's not easy to pull off, and I think all the actors uh, did a phenomenal job. I was just in general, I just was so impressed with the cinematography, the look of the movie, the music, obviously, and the acting. I thought all those things were so much stronger than the average any kind of movie, not just horror movie, but any movie. It's so spare and confident. Uh, yeah, I, I, I thought. The movie was really great. You That's what reminded me of Donnie Darko, which was such a, you know, it was a, an inexpensive movie to make, but it looked like a million bucks. It was so confident. The, again, I thought the acting in Donnie Darko was really great as well. I think that's why I tied the two together in my head, that uh, these are small movies, but with so much uh, talent and so uh, successful at what they're trying to do. Uh, and both of them kind of fever dreams or dream dream worlds. You had brought up the topic of the absence of the parents. And one of the things that I really liked, and again, this, this, this is the callback to the fact that so much is left unsaid. The little that the parents do appear, we do see uh, three moms in the entire movie. There's uh, Jay's mom. And there's Greg's mom, the guy who's who lives across the street, and we see yeah. Hugh's mom. When we see the uh, Jay's mom, well, Jay's mom is at the very beginning when Jay is coming out of the pool and meeting her friends in her own living room. Her right. mom is sitting on the phone. Her back is almost always turned to us. I feel like her face is often obscured. She makes her biggest appearance right after Jay is assaulted. She's sitting at the dining room table with Greg's mom. Greg's mom is visiting from across the street, and she is telling Greg's mom what happened to Jay, and that the boy who assaulted her said all these sick things. Now I picture it, yeah. And while she's saying it, it's the briefest moment, and she's kind of out of focus, and she's only in the corner of the screen. We don't get to see her face head on. Uh, she's pouring liquor into her teacup. She's, they're, having, they're sharing uh, some afternoon tea or coffee or something, but she is pouring liquor into her teacup. And 
you get the sense that there is a story there. Also, the evening before when Greg and his mom are watching through the window, the police cars, uh, after Jay has been assaulted, Greg's mom says to him, that family is such a mess. And there's just this terrible implication of other things having gone wrong there. And your imagination can spin it in so many different directions, especially since the monster takes the form of Jay's dad at the very end. Jay's dad is absent. So much of the violence in this movie is tinged sexually. You don't know why he's gone. Is he dead? Did he molest Jay? One of the uh, forms it takes also near the end is uh, standing on top of the house, and it's very clearly Jay's grandfather from a photo that we see earlier. There's really disturbing and upsetting ideas that sort of begin to percolate just by the suggestion of things and not by them filling any of the blanks. I think that ties into what we're talking about in terms of reading about uh, horror movies and kind of coming up with a more horrible version in your head than what might be on the screen. And these very, very, again, very deliberate, them uh, saying, oh, that family's a mess. Just They just plant, all he, the director did was plant a seed, but boy, it really takes off. You come up with all these ideas, as you rightfully point out, like what happened before? The viewer comes up with, all these possible scenarios, which are more effective than if they actually showed you something. I have a question about, I did not get that in the pool scene, that was Jay's father. Did you, and I talked to someone else who saw it, who also didn't put two and two together. I mean, afterwards I put it together, but while I was watching it, I thought it was weird that she doesn't want to describe who, you know, the person who's uh, coming after her. And initially, when she says that, the, that car- the, the, the it that's following her, is it's still invisible, if I recall correctly. And I thought, oh, when they show it, it's going to be really scary or disgusting or something. There's a reason she's not describing it. But I just wasn't quick enough when they actually showed that the father. Um, and I thought to myself, well, why didn't she want to describe him? He's just this guy in his underwear and uh, his boxer shorts. It took me until after the movie to, to put two and two together. Did you while you were watching it, know that that was the dad? I have to say that I did. It might have been because I saw it on a very big screen, and there is a very brief montage somewhere in the middle of the movie where the camera focuses on several family photos, Yep. uh, and there is the actor who's playing uh, Jay's dad uh, with her in one photo. And and then, yes, I recognized him. It might be more challenging, honestly, to see it uh, on the smaller screen and to recognize that connection. Who did you see this movie with? I saw it by myself. Okay. Because <laughs> my boyfriend doesn't like horror movies. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so how did you feel walking home or taking the bus home after you saw this movie? <laughs> you know, I, I actually did catch a matinee, and I walked out into a sunny, happy, warm day in the middle of spring. So uh, I felt just fine. I might have felt a little bit creeped out walking Chowder uh, that evening for his late night walk. Because uh, okay. there are always people off in the distance shuffling along slowly. And honestly Chowder's weirded out by them as well. He stops what he's doing and focuses on, on them. So we were both a little bit worried going out at night. I felt the same way. So I signed up I think I signed up for my Skype account after I had seen the movie. And all I was doing was putting my personal information on the website and I was thinking, all right, someone's looking at me putting this in. So I felt a little paranoid. I absolutely felt paranoid uh, after I watched the movie. 
there is uh, throughout the film, uh, through the camera work, just this real unsettling sense of voyeurism. There are all those great scenes where they obviously have like a steady cam and they use it beautifully, where the camera is spinning uh, 365 degrees. It, it definitely accentuates the tension. Voyeurism is a theme. I mean, uh, the uh, the kids who are peeping in on her while she's in the uh, in the in that pool in the backyard, and also the fact that there's so many TVs, which is something you, you know. So people are being watched, and also people are watching others. Like so, the fact that there's so many TVs around, and you're watching things, it just ties all that you know all that uh, voyeurism together. I love that Paul, their their friend, is always watching. Uh, cheesy old movies, cheesy old sci-fi movies on their TV. And if you notice, they have like a gigantic, heavy cathode tube uh, television set that is broken and has another television set sitting on, on top. top of it. Yeah, yeah. It's there's, there's a sense that the family has really fallen on hard times. Maybe the reason that mom is always away working. All these characters seem very educated. They're reading Dostoevsky. They speak very well. Uh, there's not a lot of slang. So there's a little bit of an anomaly there in terms of economics and, and education levels. I feel like we are uh, shifting out of uh, middle class and lower middle class neighborhoods in and around Detroit throughout the entire movie. And there is this sense of the urban blight that's at the edges of where the kids live. There is the sense that they're just on the cusp of their economic bracket and I feel like uh, Yara, the girl who's always on the clamshell reader, sort of acknowledges it openly in one scene where they talk about 8 Mile, which is yep. like the only real direct reference to the fact they're in Detroit. Like, for example, it's not a very racially mixed cast. And Detroit has a large African-American population, right? We see them only in passing as the kids are driving through the sketchier neighborhoods. Yeah. Because in the school, you don't see a lot of African-American kids or in their neighborhood. So, again, that's all part of this, just, I think, like the, the disorienting nature of the movie. It doesn't, you know, it's all very calculated to kind of throw you off. It all runs together with the sexual awakening of the kids. Which is, we have touched upon. So how did you, do, do you think this is like a pro-sex movie, an anti-sex movie, or how, what is, sex is obviously such a big factor in, uh, in the storyline, how do you think, what do you think it means? I feel with certainty that this is a very unsexy horror movie about <laughs> sex. <laughs> there, there, there is nothing titillating about this movie at all. And, and actually, I, I, I'm going to say that, you know, for a movie whose treats sex as a critical plot point, there, there never feels like anything exploitive about that, which is nice, especially since the kids seem so genuinely young. I feel like there's a lot of metaphor at the core of this, and a lot of it is uh, just breaking past childhood and what is the most obvious... Kind of rite of passage. Rite of passage to adulthood is having sex and all the fear and trepidation that surrounds that. And certainly, since the film is sort of uh, deliberately mired in the 70s, 80s time period, in the, in the sensibility there is a sense of STDs and AIDS and everything that was scary at that time. 
the horror movie that that I that all this that that sex and the body stuff brought to uh, brought to mind brought to my mind was Cronenberg. Oh yeah, body and, horror. Uh, and specifically, and I looked it up because I know I had seen one that remind, and, and it's called Shivers from 1975. And there, the sort of plague or whatever it is is transferred through sex. I tried to do a little research, so I saw an. In- I watched an interview of the uh, It Follows director at Khan, and he talks about, and he doesn't reference this specific movie, but he definitely references Cronenberg as one of his influences, as well as John Carpenter, the ones we know, because sex is such a major part of that movie, and the body is such a major part of Cronenberg's work. It definitely feels like it's tied in. I, I also did have. A sense of body horror, and nobody does body horror quite like Cronenberg does. There are two sort of remarkable scenes that are very quiet, that are of Jay examining herself in the mirror before her big date with Hugh. And she's wearing her outfit. She's got her bra straps showing. The lighting is very soft. And then later, after the assault and after the police have left, there is this kind of similar shot of her examining herself in her underwear in the bathroom. And the shot is really cold and she's looking and she's drawing forth the, the, the seam of her underwear and looking at herself. They're both so such intimate and real moments of self uh, examination. Uh, It's, it's very painful and it's very, very good. Look, being older, like that's something that I don't know if younger people like when AIDS was full blown was a full blown epidemic. You know, if you had a bruise or something, you would think, "Oh, is this a melanoma?" And so, examining your body totally brings back those those memories from like when STD when STDs like that were deadly. Absolutely. I have a question for you in terms of a scene that didn't make sense to me, and I want to know what you think of it. Of and that's the boat scene where Jay's on the beach and there's three guys on a boat and she's got her cast on and she goes into the water and then it doesn't come up again. I love that scene. And that scene is, for me, thematically coupled with another scene uh, a little bit later when Jay's friend Paul drives through a sketchy part of town where there are hookers. Mm Mm-hmm. In that scene uh, that you're describing, Jay begins to remove her clothes and she begins to wade out into the water into the boat where there are three young guys. The next shot, which cuts very abruptly, is her wet, her hair is wet, and she is driving back home and then we see her sleep. I think what's clear from this is that she has had sex with the guys and both she and Paul throughout the movie make moral decisions that they're not sharing with anybody else, that they're not speaking aloud. And again, this ties back to the film not letting you in on everything, even stuff that's taking place in between the frames of the scenes that we're seeing. She is able to sleep because she knows that the creature is working its way through three guys. So she has bought herself some time. Paul, later on, when he has sex with Jay and afterwards he's checking out the hookers, he's very pragmatically thinking he could have sex with any of these hookers and hookers are a perfect target because they don't have sex with one person. They would be passing it along to many other people. There are some 
terrible, terrible moral choices that are being made, and uh, neither Paul nor Jay are sharing them with anybody. That that was my sense of it. Makes perfect sense. I assume she had sex with the guys, but I didn't realize that she went to sleep right after that scene because she had peace of mind that at least she'd have a few moments without the thing coming after her. It's a, a terrible, ugly, and desperate move. When I was doing my research, there was some some rumors that there may be a sequel to the movie. I hope and, it never happens. Well, one of the things I thought might be interesting was the guy who sleeps with Jay at the beginning knows a lot about what was going on. The way I've pieced it in my mind, he must have passed it along to lots of women before he passed it along to Jay, and it just wasn't successful. Like, if someone doesn't know to fight off it, they're going to get picked off right away. And so I'm, in my mind, that guy had to have gone through several uh, le- learning experiences before he realized, okay, I'm going to have to strap this whoever I give it to in and force that person to listen to what I'm telling them so that they have the wherewithal to try to defend them themselves. Otherwise, just infecting someone so it bypasses me isn't going to be very effective because within a day, they're going to get killed because they're not going to know to protect themselves. So I think that how he accumulated all that information about it could be an interesting movie. Uh, I, I think that the young woman that we see in the opening scene is somebody that he slept with and didn't properly prepare for what was coming. We yeah. later see uh, the aftermath of her death. The grisly, one of the grisliest parts of the movie. Yeah, absolutely. And and I like that they don't show it. They, they just show the aftermath. Yeah. We do later see that young actress take the form of the entity when Jay is trying to escape Greg's weekend home. So she, I don't remember that. Remind me of that scene? So uh, there is a scene where they all go out to Greg's weekend home. Right. And there is a boathouse. And at the beginning of the scene, the uh, entity takes the form of Yara, who's swimming out on the lake, out on Lake Huron, mm-hmm. and uh, attacks Jay. And her, she and her friends run into a boathouse. Uh, right. It changes form several times. You see it briefly through the through the window as the giant kid, which for me was like the scariest thing. Just I agree. That giant appears for only like three seconds on screen back in Jay's house and then yep. briefly, just fleetingly in the window of that boathouse. But in both cases, it's so unexpected that it absolutely was probably, I think, the scariest moments for me in the movie. I agree. Uh, it, it turns into a small child to try to crawl in through a, a hole that it's kicked in through the door. Yep. Jay escapes out through the actual main casting door of the boathouse. And as she's running away from the house and gets into the car to drive away, it's taken the form of the girl who dies in the prologue of the movie. Uh, okay. So right before Jay crashes into a cornfield, that's the form that it's taken. And I do think that that's somebody that uh, Hugh, her boyfriend from the beginning... Has slept with, and I think he has that realization that you that you're aware of that he needs to share the rules of the game with the person that he's passing it on to if he's going to live, and that he even when confronted he's not sharing everything that he knows. Yeah, but he must have gone through a lot of girls to accumulate as much information as he did. Uh, at least I, in my mind, I agree. I, I get the feeling that he's a little bit better off than than Jay and her friends are. 
Absolutely. Yeah, he can afford to rent a, a dump just to try to throw people off his track. So obviously he has some extra you know, income. And his mom is the third parent that we see, and she seems happy, friendly, and clueless as to her son's nature or what sort of predicament he's in. I, I feel like economics and your economic standing are a big part of this movie. I mean, like part of being able to buy some peace from the creature is being able to have a car and drive as far as you can away from it so that you can buy yourself time. Absolutely. One of the things that I um, thought was interesting from the, um, the interviews I saw from the director, Khan, was that the pool scene at the end is a direct allusion to cat people. I love that movie. Yeah. And when I'm talking about that movie, I, uh, the movie that I love is the old black and white noir movie. Exactly. Well, that's what he was referencing, yeah. I, I mean, like, they had that same scene in the Natasha Kinski one from when we were kids and everything. Yeah. But uh, I do love the old noir one. And I've been kind of meaning to revisit uh, the old Natasha Kinski, uh, Malcolm McDowell one. I remember just it being very sleazy and I love and loving the david bowie song and some of the dream imagery from it but i I remember thinking it was kind of junky especially by comparison with the noir film which would be interesting to watch i'm sure it is of its time i think it might have been a reaction to american werewolf in london nothing spawns copycats like a successful movie well in in the original cat people sex is such and maybe that's a movie we should revisit sex is so taboo Oh yeah, uh, these the people in, in that lineage, if I remember correctly, kill the people they have sex with, right? Uh, yeah, it's a praying mantis syndrome. Yeah, yeah. So sex is such, and for that time, it's such a risque topic. And so the pool scene makes sense because it's it's a direct pull from that movie, but also the theme that sex is deadly is the same parallel in both movies. Did you happen to see the noir sequel to the original Cat People? I think I've seen parts of it. What's it called? It's called Curse of the Cat People. And yeah. it has all the same actors as the first film. It's uh, it's a Christmas movie. It is a cheerful, strange Christmas <laughs> movie. It is one of the weirdest. I don't think it's great. I think it definitely diminishes the first film. But it is a real oddity. So, Interesting. Yeah. And so the end of the end of the movie, which I just rewatched just to see if they're smiling or what they're wearing, what did you think of the end of the movie? Again, I, I feel like the movie is very ambiguous about it. And let me just preface one thing. So in the con festival, they were the reporters were asking the director to try to define certain things or and he refused to because it is so it's ambiguous on purpose and I think more effective because it's ambiguous. So I, I don't think there's a real answer, what do you think? or what happened. I think it's uh, the interesting thing is that so many different answers, you know, there's so many different possible answers. But I'm just curious to think what you, you know, how you interpreted it, knowing that there's no real answer. Well, first of all, I really respect the director for saying that. It's kind of what David Lynch always says, that a mystery is a beautiful thing. And many people may have different uh, interpretations or takes on his movies, but he, he'll never share his own take on his films, whatever was intended, deliberately or otherwise. Which is great, because everyone can read a great deal more, especially when... It's so rife with rich material. As to the ending of It Follows, I don't think they're free of it. I think that it's just a momentary moment of peace that they have bought themselves. And like I mentioned before, I I feel like they've, they've 
they've compromised their souls in some de- to some degree. I think they've done terrible things off screen deliberately to buy themselves a little bit more time. And I think it's going to catch up with them. I toyed with the idea that they were going to sacrifice themselves, that they know that there's no way they can beat this thing. And so when I look back, I saw that she's wearing a white lace dress under her jacket, almost like a wedding dress. Or when you present like a virgin sacrifice, even though they're clearly not virgins. So I felt like there's some sort of weird uh, marriage, like these are, they're married now, uh, which they are because they're, they're, you know, they're in this together. But on some level, I, I thought, I wonder if they're going to just give in or do you think they're really going to in my imagination I think they're going to I don't know because they did fight a lot I can't I can't um, decide whether I think they're going to sacrifice themselves or now that they're married in some way are going to fight this thing together do either of those seem like the direction it could go I like your comment on their clothes. I think their their costuming during the final scene is pretty significant. They're both wearing a combination of white and black, which mm-hmm. we haven't seen them wear. And they're both wearing uh, symmetrical matching outfits. There is some aspect uh, of them that, that seems virginal, that seems like they are washed clean of what's happened. I think that their costuming is very, very significant. While I don't think that they're going to escape, I think that they believe that they've figured it out and they've freed themselves, and I don't think they have. Hmm. Did you see uh, not a great horror film called The Woman in Black? With uh, Daniel Radcliffe. I didn't see it. There's always this sense, it's really heavy in Japanese spectral horror, where there is a problem to be solved. The characters take on a haunting as a puzzle to be figured out. But what I like is the rejection of that by the thing that they're trying to solve. They shoot it. There is blood that only Jay sees in the swimming pool at the end. Yeah. They think they're free, but they're not. Uh, There is no solution to this. A lot of people have died of this before them. They haven't solved it. That's what reminds me of the Final Destination movies, which you haven't seen, which is basically it's death that you're fighting. Yeah. And there's, there's no way you can, have, you can postpone it a little bit or misdirect it, but basically there's no way to beat it. Right. And these characters seem too smart to not get that. There's no way to beat it. Even if the hookers sleep around and it spreads... Unless they know to defend themselves, the next time some person walks up to them and touches them, you know, out of the blue, it's not going to be effective. And so they just seem too smart to not realize that this is inevitable. I would like to believe that. <laughs> I don't think that's where the movie leaves us. My take was that, that they thought they were safe. Which is, I think, also smart on some level, because otherwise it's suicide. And so I guess it's, is it worth fighting it, knowing that you're going to... Uh, succumb to this eventually or do you just give into it of course the, the correct solution is is to fight even if it's a losing battle uh what, yeah. what, what have we learned from don quixote you you fight nevertheless and at the end you want to know that you did everything that you could even yeah. in the face of a doomed battle even in the face of of certainty of certain death you died fighting nobody curls up and 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 gives up in this movie except for the very first girl who understands that she needs to get away from it but at some point even with a, with a car, decides to stop. It is a little puzzling that she just sits in front of the headlights and gives up. Yeah. And so often, thematically, you start something and then come back to the same point when you end it. And so I think, if anything, that might add more strength to the argument that they're going to give up because that's how they started the movie. 
then it it's going to end the same way. Look, it's all open for interpretation. And I think the right thing to do is keep fighting. You're right. But on some level, do people do that? Or do people give up? Is it too exhausting? Sometimes at some point, people give up their fight. It was definitely one of my favorite movies of last year. You know, when it comes to horror genres that are all the rage right now, found footage, torture porn, the sort of postmodern meta horror. Like The Cabin in the Woods or something? Cabin in the Woods, which I enjoyed very, very much. Though it had a real sour feeling to it. There's something very cynical about it that prevented me from feeling entirely satisfied from it. I enjoyed it a great deal, but... I don't know. At the end of that movie, my jaw was like, really? Is this how it's ending? (laughs) (laughs) It felt felt like the end of a thesis. Um, uh, But this this was an homage. I feel like there are a very small number of very excellent homages that have been callbacks to earlier great horror movies and... At the same time, they bring their own special spin to it. I agree. He talks about being a horror movie fan. He, I mean, he corrects the the critics by or the interviewers by saying, "Look, he's a movie fan, but he's definitely a, a horror movie fan." And I think that's why maybe you and I really appreciated, and other people didn't. This is because we kind of grew up watching all these movies, and so we get the references. Or- the tone, and it's a real, I think, a real horror movie lover's movie. And I'm definitely looking forward to whatever his next movie is. Although, I felt the same way when I saw Donnie Darko and all the subsequent movies I haven't liked. Uh, yeah, I, I felt the same way. I definitely saw this movie without reading any reviews. And, uh, so, and it was hard to keep in the dark, because I've seen this a, a full year after it came out, and I didn't read any reviews. I, I saw, like, one or two glimpses of screenshots of the film I had no idea what to expect that's awesome yeah and you saw it early so you saw an opening weekend so you really didn't you didn't know anything about it either yeah Uh, afterwards the polarizing effect that the movie had of people absolutely hating it or completely adoring it felt very much like the Blair Witch Project Uh, a lot of people who hated it were reacting very very badly to the hype machine and all the critical raves and the really high Rotten Tomato meter on it there was definitely Definitely some angry backlash. Like, is that all there is? Or this wasn't what I was led to expect it to, to be. There's two other movies I wanted to reference. One is The Sentinel. Do you remember that movie? Of course. Um, and so the, the that scene that you mentioned where they're in the boathouse and the things are coming through, that reminded me so much of the uh, deformed people coming through and the demons coming through that, what was supposed to be, the I guess, the gate to hell. Did you Did that bring that up to you? Uh, I have not seen The Sentinel since I was very, very little. I'll have to revisit it. Yeah. Well, I haven't seen it since, I think, since you were a kid. But it, it that, that impression. stuck. It made an impression, exactly. Excellent. And in terms of Blair Witch that you're bringing up, the end scene of the, the guy in the corner and that, the, that basement was terrifying. And it reminded me a little bit of the terrifying these terrifying moments. And it follows. But what I hated about Blair Witch is the dialogue seemed so stupid throughout. It didn't seem, I, and I think it must, it was ad-libbed, if, if I'm correct. It wasn't a lot of scripted stuff. And here, everything was so perfectly, deliberately planned out that this is such, to me, such a more well-executed movie such than Blair Witch. It was an aspect of the found footage quality and that they had the not-so-great dialogue. It added to the verisimilitude. Yeah. 
Did you like Blair Witch? I did at the time when, when I saw it. I remember, I, I think I had my first computer and I was visiting their official website and I was very creeped out and I wasn't certain if this was a true story or not. It definitely added to the creepiness. They, they had a, a, for, at a time where I, I think nobody had a website except maybe Space Jam, they had a really, really great website that made it seem as if this was a true event yeah. and, and, the, and the footage had really been discovered and it added to just just the awfulness of the situation. Yeah, it sounds like what, looking at that website would have made it a more full experience, which I didn't have. Did you see The Conjuring? The Conjuring. I did not see it. Oh, um, it's really good. Really good? It feels very, very 70s. I, I don't know how you feel about The Exorcist. I never loved... I mean, I, I like The Exorcist and I like uh, Ellen Burstyn. It never... Like, for example, but when I think of movies of that period that made more of an impact, like Rosemary's Baby to me made more of an impact on me than The Exorcist. Agreed. I don't know how you feel. The Exorcist always left me completely cold. I never understood how popular it was or how everyone kept on insisting it was the scariest movie ever. I haven't seen the newer version with the spider walk or whatever they call it, uh, which is supposed to be creepy, but I agree with you. It, did, it left me cold. And how do you feel about Rosemary's Baby? I love Rosemary's Baby. It's that terrible sense of being trapped. I, I guess they both focus on a similar theme. There's something about uh, The Exorcist. They have their Satan stuff, but it's so tied up with all this Catholic mumbo-jumbo and the priests and everything that it actually kind of loses me. I found it a lot less scary. I agree. And I think the pacing is off. I think what's the slow burn of Rosemary's Baby is what's so great. And if I remember correctly in The Exorcist, they kind of get to it relatively quickly in terms of the mechanics of The Exorcism. Weirdly, The Conjuring feels to me like a version of The Exorcist that I could be scared of. Okay. Um, Have you seen Insidious? It's funny you bring that because I was going to say, I finally saw the first one on TV. I think it was edited. It wasn't on one of these premium channels. Oh, no. And I really enjoyed it. And Uh, I really liked the character who I understand is the central character in Insidious 3, the the older woman. Oh yeah, Lynn Shay. I love her to pieces. And I she's thought, and like a big LGBT ally as well. I, oh, I love that actress. So that the fact that I liked her so much in the first one, and for some reason this one scene stuck to me. There's, a, I forget the actor's name, the dad. Uh, they're getting ready to go to bed and he's putting some eye cream on. Patrick Wilson, I, yes. And, and I love that, that, too. Yeah, that little detail. And I remember thinking, that's a little weird. And then when you see the ending, it all makes sense. But I like those little details. I really enjoyed the first one. And I should I see the second one or the third one first? Uh, see the second one. The second one's good. The second one's okay. really good. And, and the, the third one, how is that one? Uh, the third one, I thought, felt kind of unnecessary. It's not great. Even I, though she's the, that, that actress is the central character. Yes, even though she's a central character, it just felt like an in-between installment. Like, they can do another good film after this one. Like it's, filler. Exactly. It's it, it's a prequel for some reason to the first two films and it felt like unnecessary. So knowing that, do you think I should watch the third one before the second one and then maybe it won't feel as unnecessary? Nope. That's a really good question that you would ask that. I used to have a Twin Peaks group up in uh, Wisconsin when I was living there and I found that watching the film version, Twin Peaks Firewalk with me, which I hated. I absolutely hated that movie. But if I showed it in the middle of the TV series, people adored it. And I found that I liked it too. It's funny. That movie works, but not as a capper for the series. It works right immediately after the killer is revealed in the TV show. And, And that's an instance where, you know, watching something out of sequence works really, really, really well. Interesting. But Insidious to me always felt to me like a really effective homage to Poltergeist. And that Lynn Shea character, I feel like 
like has a companion character in Poltergeist. There's a, not Zelda Rubinstein, the, the little uh, actress yeah. who plays the medium, but there's a British actress. The redhead. The redhead. She's yeah. so good. She's great. She, she's a veteran actress who's like a character actor who's been in lots of different things from that time period. But there's a speech when they're all camped out. They're sleeping in sleeping bags in the living room. And she talks about the afterlife to one of the scared little kids. And for me, it's one of my favorite moments in the entire movie. Uh, she she is so compelling. And there's that whispery quality to what she's saying. And she's trying to be comforting, but not pull any punches at the same time. That's what Lin Shay's character reminded me of. And I think that it's even more beautifully filled out in the in the first two films. Uh, that's interesting that you put those two characters together because they're both smart women and they both have like a very humane, human quality to them, uh, even though they're dealing with these crazy things. And they're kind of both reassuring presences in both movies. Love it. Yeah. Love it, love it, love it. Have you seen, and this is the last homage movie that I'm, I'm going to reference, is have you seen Sinister? With Ian I have Hawk? not seen Sinister, no. That is a good one as well. I wanted to ask you, one of the things I've noticed, changing topics a little bit, Angoria Magazine, which I would read, I never really bought it, but I would off, I read it almost every month at uh, the Barnes & Noble. It seems like Barnes & Noble is no longer carrying it. Do you know if there's an issue, are they no longer printing it, or... Do you know anything that's going on with that? It's funny because I, I feel like you and I lead parallel lives because <laughs> <laughs> I, I was literally reading the movie review section of Fangoria every month at the Borders bookstore that was near yep. my near my home. And Same. they went out of business and it's been years since, since Borders went out of business that I've sneakily read the Fangoria uh, movie reviews. But I love them. I, I, it was one of my favorite uh, movie review. Mine too. Uh, Excellent. All right. Uh, I think this has been successful. I don't know how you feel. <laughs> I think it has been. <laughs>